it's a sad place from my perspective for our nation. And I think that the worst of it is going to be just the whole debasing, if you will, of our nation. Debasing accomplished. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the sweltering globe on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, just trying to keep up with it all today. Yeah, it's like a volcano, and it feels like we're sitting on the edge of it. And it feels like we're in a volcano out here in Los Angeles right now, uh, which which we will talk about in our uh, Green News report upcoming a little bit later in the show as uh, the temperatures continue to swelter out here, even as uh, in late October, even as the World Series begins for the... uh, National League's uh, Los Angeles Dodgers against the Houston Astros. Uh, So we'll get to that straight ahead, but we've got so much breaking news today. We've got to pick and choose where we go. So let me start here. Condemning the nastiness of Republican politics in the era of President Donald Trump, Arizona U.S. Senator Jeff Flake on Tuesday announced during a scorching Senate floor speech condemning both the behavior of Donald Trump and fellow Republicans who failed to speak out or take action against him out of fear. Uh, Senator Flake announced that he will serve out the remainder of his term in the U.S. Senate, but will not seek re-election next year as previously expected in 2018. Pretty huge news, a bombshell, in fact, Uh, Flake detailed late on Tuesday afternoon uh, that news which will, according to the Arizona Republic, further royal Republican hopes of keeping the party's 52-seat Senate majority in the midterm elections for uh, during Trump's first term next year when the president's party historically loses seat in Congress, loses seats in, in Congress, in the Senate and the House alike. Now, Republicans have many, many fewer seats they have to defend than do Democrats next year. 
But uh, this now adds one more that they will uh, have perhaps a more difficult time defending in Arizona. It's also likely that uh, this will upend the race for his seat. He has been one of the Senate's more prominent critics of Donald Trump and has been struggling in the polls among both Democrats and Republicans in Arizona. Flake told the Arizona Republic ahead of his announcement today that he has become convinced, quote, there may not be a place for a Republican like me in the current Republican climate or the current Republican Party. May? Uh, Flake said he has not soured on the Senate. He loves the institution. But as a traditional libertarian leaning conservative Republican, he is out of step with today's Trump dominated GOP. In the speech on the Senate floor, Flake condemned the, quote, flagrant disregard of truth and decency that is undermining American democracy. He called on others to risk their careers in this atmosphere or watch America and the GOP turn into a, quote, fearful, backward-looking people and a fearful, backward-looking party. Here's uh, a few moments from Jeff Flake's speech announcing he will not run for the U.S. Senate next year. There are times when we must risk our careers in favor of our principles. Now is such a time. We must stop pretending that the degradation of our politics and the conduct of some in our executive branch are normal. They are not normal. And when such behavior emanates from the top of our government, it is something else. It is dangerous to a democracy. He went on to say this spell will pass, but not by next year, noting on the Senate floor that neither the party nor the country will succeed by, quote, calling fake things true and true things fake. Wow. Yeah, he was. Uh, wow. he, he pulled no punches in that speech. Uh, pulled no punches, except he didn't mention the uh, name of the president. But I guess we all knew who he was talking about. Among Republican primary voters, uh, there is overwhelming support, however, still for Trump's position and for his behavior, said Flake. Uh, before the announcement, speaking with the uh, Arizona Republic, and uh, that one of the top concerns among those voters is whether a candidate is with the president or against him. While Flake said he is with Trump on some issues, on others he is not, and Trump definitely views him as a foe, having denounced Flake publicly, called him toxic on Twitter. Here's the bottom line. Flake told the uh, the Republican in a telephone interview, he said, the path that I would have to travel to get to the Republican nomination is a path I am not willing to take. Good for him. And that I can't in good conscience uh, take such a path. He said it would require me to believe in positions I don't hold on such issues as trade and immigration. It would require me to condone behavior that I cannot condone. AP notes that, Republicans may be left with a hardcore right-wing challenger that might win the primary but lose in the general election. Of course, the AP and others uh, in the corporate mainstream media also believe that was true about Donald Trump. And you saw how that worked out. But yeah, wow. Uh, First, the much-respected Republican Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee who announced a few weeks ago that he will not run next year. Now Republican Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. Both, Both senators... Um, that in less insane times would likely have been shoo-ins for re-election. 
So uh, we, we may want to run some, some more excerpts from that remarkable flake speech at some point. Uh, but in related matters, you know, I've been, uh, been trying to avoid the most political stuff of late since it seems so ugly, so petty, and with, frankly, so much else that's going on that needs far more attention. Uh, but the war of words that broke out uh, between Corker, this was before Flake's announcement, these war of words that broke out today between Corker, again, a well-respected Republican senator, a Republican senator and Donald Trump, the not-as-well-respected president of the United States, uh, who had once considered Corker for both to be his vice president and to be his secretary of state. This war of words today is amazing and disturbing for what it could portend, frankly, for the entire world, if you listen to what Corker is trying to say. We'll discuss that shortly with my guest uh, that I'm very much looking forward to uh, in a moment. But on Tuesday morning, Corker appeared on a number of network morning shows, Uh, that seemed to set Trump off on Twitter and then naturally brought responses in turn from Corker. And I don't know if we have ever seen this sort of a thing between a sitting president and a top U.S. senator from his very own party. Um, So there was a lot said back and forth that I suspect others will focus on. But I want to focus specifically on the comments that Corker made when he was asked by NBC's Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show, following up on on Corker's recent comments that Trump was leading us down a path to World War III, as Corker told the New York Times. And again, he's chair of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker is, and he feels that the president himself is a threat to national security. Let me put it bluntly, left to his own devices, do you think the president is a threat to national security? I, I do think when you have the kind of issue we're dealing with in North Korea, uh, where we have a very unstable leader there, uh, when you send out tweets into the region to raise tensions, when you kneecap, uh, which is what he's done publicly, when you kneecap your Secretary of State, whose diplomacy you have to depend upon to really bring China to the table to do the things that need to be done, back-channeling in some cases uh, to North Korea. When you kneecap that effort, so, you really move our country into a binary choice, uh, which could lead to a world war. So, yes, uh, I want him to support diplomatic efforts, not uh, embarrass and really malign efforts that are underway to try to, to try to get some kind of diplomatic solution here. And I think most people would agree with that. We, well, I would agree with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to see a diplomatic solution in North Korea versus the path that Donald Trump seems to be setting the world on. Uh, That was uh, Bob Corker on the Today Show. He was uh, on a bunch of other shows and asked similar questions. Uh, And of course, so Donald Trump took to took to Twitter shortly thereafter, said Bob Corker, who helped President Obama give us the bad Iran deal. Corker actually voted against the Iran deal. Uh, And uh, he said couldn't get elected dog catcher in Tennessee is now fighting tax cuts. Corker dropped out of the race in Tennessee when I refused to endorse him and now is only negative on anything Trump. Look at his record. Well, actually, Corker says he was asked four different times by the president to run again next year. He says he can prove that. Uh, Corker then responded uh, in his own tweet, said, same untruths from an utterly untruthful president. Wow. Adding the hashtag 
alert the daycare staff. That shot was a reprise of Corker's attack on Trump earlier this month when he tweeted, quote, it's a shame the White House has become an adult daycare center. Someone obviously missed their shift this morning. <laughs> asked, uh, asked later by reporters on Capitol Hill if Trump was debasing the nation, Corker responded, I don't think there's any question that that's the case, just in the way that he conducts himself and goes to such a low level. He says it's obviously uh, a political model and his governing model to divide. In another session with reporters, Corker said there had been multiple occasions where Trump's staff had asked him to please intervene when he's getting ready to do something that was off the tracks. Trump's own staff, says Corker, was asking him to please intervene. Please help us. The call is coming from inside the White House. Yep. Uh, Corker told a CNN reporter in the hallway that his family grew up not using the L word when he was asked if he was a liar. Uh, So he wouldn't use the word liar, but he went on to lament that world leaders know that Yes, Trump is a liar, that he is no longer, that he's not to be trusted, and that he sees no possibility that Donald Trump will ever change. I, I don't know. It's it's amazing. Unfortunately, I think world leaders are very aware that um, much of what he says is untrue. Uh, certainly people here are because these things are provably untrue. I mean, just they're just factually incorrect and people know the difference so i don't know why he lowers himself uh to such a low low standard and debases our country in the way that he does but he does but uh you know it's unfortunate that our nation finds itself um in this place is the president of the united states a liar the president uh has great difficulty with the truth on many issues nice do you regret supporting him in the election uh, well, let's just put it this way. I would not do that again. So You wouldn't support him again? No way. Uh-huh. No way. No, I, I think that uh, no way. he's proven himself uh, unable to rise to the occasion. I think many of us, me, me included, have, you know, tried to, you know, I've intervened. I've had private dinner. I've, you know, I've been with him on multiple occasions to try to you know, create some kind of aspirational um uh, uh, approach, if you will, to the way that he conducts himself, but uh, I don't think that that's possible, and um, I, he's obviously not going to, to rise to the occasion as president. So, uh, Bob Corker there, um, clearly, if you li- listen to his comments throughout the morning, uh, not happy about any of this, no, he not sounds, taking any joy in this. He sounds totally exhausted. I just wish that he would have reached these conclusions back, say, in 2016, much, much, much earlier. Yeah, and same with Jeff Flake, who uh, also seemed to have this sadness about him uh, in announcing that he was not going to run again for the U.S. Senate and explaining why. So now we have at least two Republican U.S. senators who have publicly noted that Trump is never going to change, nor will he rise to the occasion of being president. That's two out of uh, 52 in the uh, caucus, uh, nor that he uh, should be trusted on anything, a message that world leaders obviously see is the case. Uh, But the fact is, Congress has otherwise taken no action to prevent this unstable, dishonest president from launching wars anywhere in the world that he feels like launching, including potentially a nuclear war. 
That is now neither a partisan nor an academic question at this point. As we noted yesterday, a disturbing exclusive report over the weekend from Defense One regarding plans by the U.S. Air Force to return nuclear-armed bombers to 24-7 readiness status for the first time since the Cold War. And, uh, well, for some reason... (laughs) Well, that was the report from Defense One. We will discuss that story and what reason uh, there might be to do that with someone who has been following nuclear weapons issues in the U.S. and across the world now for decades. Atomic analyst Stephen Schwartz joins us next to discuss how much of a threat to national and world security the president of the United States now is. Uh, don't miss this conversation. I'm very excited about it. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Are you, are you, are you ready for the great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your savior in the air? Will you shout or will you cry when fire comes from high? Are you ready for the great atomic power? Mm. I'm not. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In a March 1981 paper published by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, renowned renowned Harvard law professor and director of the Harvard's Negotiation Project, which helped to negotiate peace and arms accords around the world, Roger Fisher discussed the importance of reaching a wise decision during negotiations, especially in terms of nuclear arms. He described his suggestion for making the decision to use such weapons much less abstract for a president of the United States tasked with making that determination. His advice is currently pinned to the top of the Twitter page of former Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists publisher and executive editor Stephen Schwartz. Here's Fisher's 1981 description of that advice. He said... My suggestion was quite simple. Put that needed code number that the president must use to launch a nuclear strike in a little capsule and then implant that capsule right next to the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer would carry with him a big, heavy butcher knife as he accompanied the president. And if the president wanted to fire nuclear weapons, the only way he could do so would be for him first with his own hands to kill one human being. The president says, George, I'm sorry, but tens of millions must die. He has to look at someone and realize what death is, what an innocent death is. Blood on the White House carpet, it's reality brought home, wrote Fisher. He said, when I suggested this to a friend in the uh, the Pentagon, they said, quote, my God, that's terrible. Having to kill someone would distort the president's judgment. He might never push the button. Well... A week or two ago, 
Tennessee's Republican U.S. Senator Bob Corker, the much-respected chair of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who recently told the New York Times that Trump is setting the world on a path to World War III. Uh, that's what he said a few weeks ago. And today, when asked on NBC's Today Show uh, if President Trump is a national security threat, Corker told NBC again that, yes, Trump needs to be contained by members of his cabinet, namely his secretary of defense, his secretary of state, his White House chief of staff. His comments uh, concurred that, indeed, yes, the president himself is now a national security threat. And this is no longer merely a partisan question, as it might have been seen back during the presidential election last year when Hillary Clinton and her campaign attempted to warn about the dangers of giving access to nuclear weapons to a guy like Donald Trump, who has in recent weeks promised uh, fire and fury like the world has never seen in regard to threats from nuclear-armed North Korea. And from the podium at the U.N. General Assembly, Trump threatened to, quote, completely destroy the isolated nation of some 25 million people, a threat that North Korea's foreign minister has said the nation regards as a declaration of war. And while it's no longer a partisan question, it may also no, no longer be an academic one either. Yesterday on the broadcast, we discussed the exclusive report over the weekend from Defense One's Marcus Weisgerber, which uh, serves as another reminder that this is not just a theoretical premise anymore, at least to me on my reading of that article. Weisgerber reported that uh, the U.S. Air Force is preparing to put nuclear-armed bombers back on 24-hour ready alert, a status not seen since the Cold War ended in 1991. Reporting from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, Weisgerber noted that renovations are now being made to the structure next to the long, dormant concrete pads at the end of Barksdale's 11,000-foot runways where nuclear-laden B-52s were once parked and ready to take off at a moment's notice for decades during the Cold War. The report quotes the U.S. Air Force's top officer, General David Goldfein, noting that while he has yet to receive an order to put the B-52s on nuclear-ready status, the Air Force is preparing for that, preparing for that order and is currently installing beds in the structure at the end of the runway for more than 100 crew members, more than enough room for the crews that would man bombers positioned on the nine alert pads outside. Goldfein is quoted as telling Defense One, the world is a dangerous place, and we've got folks that are talking openly about using nuclear weapons. And yes, as I noted yesterday, those folks would include our own president, it seems. Goldfein said it's no longer a bipolar world where it's just us and the Soviet Union. We've got other players out there who have nuclear capability. It's never been more important to make sure that we get this mission right. In response to the publication of that disturbing story, Stephen Schwartz, the longtime nuclear weapons policy analyst, unleashed a Twitter thread asking, among other things, what is the real justification for what appears to be the new Air Force military footing here, asking, are we that afraid of a first strike by North Korea, by Russia, by China? He added that the U.S. already has hundreds, if not thousands, of nuclear-tipped ICBM warheads on the ready at dozens of locations, as well as on ballistic missile submarines throughout the world. Uh, returning fueled and armed B-52 bombers to 24-7 ground alert will needlessly increase the, the risk 
of a serious nuclear accident, Schwartz charged, adding an ominous P.S. If you think Russia won't see this as provocative and react accordingly, I've got a lovely and profitable Trump casino to sell you. Joining us now to perhaps answer some of the questions he asked on Twitter or at least fill in some of the details is Stephen Schwartz. As noted, he's a nuclear weapons policy analyst and former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. He's also former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review and a current adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and the author of, among other things, the report Nuclear Security Spending, Assessing Costs, Examining Priorities, and the book Atomic Audit, The Cost and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. Stephen Schwartz, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. Thank you. Glad to be on. Uh, uh, well, I was going to say I'm happy to have you here. I'm not so sure how <laughs> yeah, happy I'm not I'm really happy either, but... <laughs> Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's start here just by way of background. How long had the uh, had the U.S. kept those nuclear armed B-52s at the ready, and and what were they intended at the time to be able to do? Uh, we had our B-52 and other strategic bombers on alert for basically most of the 1960s, uh, beginning in the in the probably the late 1950s and continuing into the 1960s. And in fact, at one point. For many years, we had an airborne alert program where we had uh, a number of uh, B-52 bombers, armed bombers, uh, in the air constantly, not the same plane, obviously, but Mm -hmm. a rotating number of aircraft flying over the United States, Canada, uh, Greenland, uh, Europe, and so forth, uh, prepared to march, you know, a la fail-safe, a la Dr. Strangelove, uh, toward their fail-safe points and, and bomb the heck out of the Soviet Union. Uh, we stopped the airborne alert program after a couple of horrendous accidents in 1966 and 1968 in Spain and in Greenland. Uh, the airborne alert, sorry, the ground alert program continued until September 1991 when it was discontinued on the recommendation of then uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Colin Powell and then Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney under the George W. George H. W. Bush administration. So you noted on Twitter that even after those B-52s or the bombers, whatever they were, were were stood down uh, along with the end of the Cold War, we have for decades and and still have plenty of nuclear-armed ICBMs ready to to launch against pretty much anywhere in the world at a moment's notice, even without uh, the addition of these uh, bombers that is now being discussed? Right. Well, that's what made this story so strange. And even with some denials and clarifications from the U.S. Strategic Command and the Air Force uh, yesterday, after the, well, the story broke on Sunday, and then it really got a lot of coverage yesterday, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going on here. But that's absolutely correct. Yeah, today we have uh, 400 Minuteman three ICBMs. They're on 24-7 alert. They can be fired within about four or five minutes of receiving in order from the president to launch, uh, and each of those carry a single warhead. They used to carry more, but we've been downloading them because of the, uh, the New START Treaty and mm-hmm. other arms control agreements. And in addition to that, we always have at least uh, five Trident ballistic missile submarines on what's known as hard alert, so they're in their patrol areas in the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, and they are prepared to go to launch depth and fire their missiles within about 15 minutes or so of receiving a launch order. And those five submarines carry about four to 500 warheads. 
And on top of that... Four, four, uh, four we, to five hundred warheads on each of those submarines? Not on each of the submarines, no, total. In total, total. okay. Each, each of the submarines has 20 uh, Trident II mm -hmm. ballistic missiles. Uh -huh. Each missile carries uh, four to five warheads. Okay. Well, so y you asked the, this question on Twitter. It seems clear that if we had to, for some reason, respond either defensively or even offensively in a first strike, strike capability with nuclear weapons for some odd reason, that we are well covered in that regard. So while you asked what could possibly be the purpose for this, you didn't answer it. But <laughs> what could possibly be the purpose for this? Well, it's a good question. You know, the reason we created first the ground alert and then the airborne alert program, the reason we still maintain our ICBMs on, on basically quick launch alert today mm -hmm. is because of concern of what was then called a, a bolt out of the blue attack or a surprise attack from the Soviet Union, uh, whereby they would attempt to essentially disarm us by destroying all of our nuclear weapons before we could use them. Um, that fear should have, and I believe did dissipate uh, with the end of the Cold War. So, like I said, what do we, first of all, North Korea doesn't even have uh, the capability yet to mm -hmm. uh, launch nuclear-armed ICBMs against us. They're moving rapidly in that direction. So that can't be it. And we've been facing the same threat from Russia and from China for quite a number of years now. So that can't be it either. I was speculating that I think it's probably tied to uh, a desire on the part of the Air Force to make the uh, strategic bomber wing of what we call the nuclear triad, the, the missiles, the bombers, and the submarines, more visible. Mm -hmm. uh, the Air Force is uh, uh, intending to purchase a brand-new uh, strategic bomber, the, the B-21, that will be very, very expensive uh, to replace the B-52s. And they also want to build a brand-new nuclear-armed cruise missile to replace the nuclear cruise missiles that currently arm the B-52s, and this effort to talk about, if not actually resume, grand alert of aircraft would further justify efforts to build new bombers mm -hmm. um, and that cruise missile. But, of course, that's not, the Air Force says now that's not what they're intending, uh, and the Strategic Air Command, which ultimately controls all of these weapons, says, no, what we're really doing is simply making preparations to improve our readiness so that if we have to go back on alert, uh, we will be ready and able to do so, which is interesting in and of itself. I mean, what would cause us to actually need to go uh, back on alert? And then there was another argument that came out yesterday from Strategic Command that what they're really doing is upgrading these facilities for pilots, not for pilots of B-52 bombers that would be on alert, but for the crew of the so-called doomsday plane, uh, the military, the militarized version of the 747 that the president, the secretary of defense, and other people would use in the event of a nuclear war mm. to conduct a war if ground-based facilities were destroyed. So even if it doesn't concern uh, nuclear war with B-52 bombers, it does concern potential nuclear war on the other side with these command and control aircraft. Yeah, that explanation is not necessarily any more comforting either. Right. <laughs> uh, the, uh, in, 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 let me ask you, in, in comments uh, to your, uh, to your thr uh, Twitter thread, I noted that someone had suggested that uh, perhaps this is not for uh, defensive purposes as much as a first strike capability. Um, your thoughts on that, uh, at least previously, unthinkable notion? 
we do not need to put the bombers back on alert in order to conduct a first strike. First of all, if we're going to con- strike first with nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, we're not going to be using bombers, almost certainly. Why? Because they take hours and hours and hours to reach their targets. Um, the difference between having B-52 bombers armed, fueled armed, and on the runway ready to go uh, versus not is the difference between being able to launch them uh, in about four or five minutes or a few hours. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of any scenario that would require us to launch our bombers that quickly. Again, the only reason we adopted that posture back during the Cold War was because we were concerned, wrongly as it turns out, that the Soviets were going to uh, attack all of our uh, nuclear bases mm-hmm. and, and try to wipe us out with the first strike of their own. And so we felt we needed to have our weapons primed and ready to go all the time. So that's not, you know, there's nothing in the world that has changed today, I would argue, that makes that necessary. Now, it's true that if we were to consider using nuclear weapons, God forbid, against North Korea, it's most likely that we would use some combination of bombers uh, and probably the B-52 bomber uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, if we can't really use our, our Minuteman ICBMs because they would have to fly over Russia and China to reach North Korea. And that's just a really, really bad idea, <laughs> either in peacetime mm-hmm. or, God forbid, in a crisis. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to be sending warheads uh, to people that don't consider you very friendly mm-hmm. and say, oh, by the way, that isn't meant for you. It's for that country <laughs> on the other side of your country, so yeah. don't pay it any mind at all. Right. No one's going to believe that. Well, so that's, that's just too dangerous. Well, y- you note that 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 you know nothing has really changed uh, uh, to to change our footing, uh, at least with Russia and China. Um, obviously, uh, North Korea is getting closer to having their own uh, uh, nuclear weapons. They they say that could uh, reach the U.S., but uh, something really big has changed. Maybe this is the elephant in the living room here. Donald Trump is now the president of the United States, and um, I, well. I noticed that you pinned uh, that tweet uh, citing uh, that that disturbing story uh, from Roger Fisher about implanting the nuclear codes near the heart of a volunteer. uh, That It looks like you had either tweeted that or pinned that back in December of 2015. So it doesn't seem to have been a direct response, uh, at least to our current situation. But what moved you way back in December 2015 before most folks regarding you know, had regarded uh, Trump's nomination, much less his presidency, to be uh, realistic. Why did you pull that one out back in 2015, as you recall? I I had heard about this story years ago, even mm-hmm. before I was associated with running the Bulletin of the mm-hmm. Atomic Scientist. I'd heard about it in college back in the 1980s, the last time that we were all scared out of our wits by a president who was talking about, you know, making nuclear wars winnable and mm-hmm. fighting them and so forth. Um, and uh, in going across some things back at the end of 2015, I don't remember exactly what sparked it, but I, I put it up there and I tweeted it, uh, and it got a lot of attention. And I thought this is if this is just buried in my Twitter feed, nobody's going to find it. So I just left it up there uh, at some time in 2016 before the election got going. I put it up there, and of course, you know, more recently it's gotten more attention. But it does strike people as, as macabre, as bizarre, as you know, crazy. A lot of people who, you know, support using nuclear weapons like that's nuts. You know, why would you ever want to do that? Mm-hmm. A number of people have written in and said, oh, well, that's, that's an interesting idea, but, you know, 
Trump wouldn't hesitate for a second to carve up somebody. And I said, actually, that's not true. <laughs> if you look, he's, he's on record with Howard Stern and other people about this, this huge personal aversion he has to blood and to bodily substances. And I think it's quite likely that, you know, this is obviously a, a hypothetical uh, scenario designed to get people thinking about what it means to right. actually launch nuclear weapons. But if this were a real-world scenario, I have little doubt that Donald Trump would blanch at the thought of having to take a knife to one of you know his aides yeah. in order to extract the codes to launch the nuclear weapon. So it could actually be quite a good deterrent if it were a real world scenario. Yeah, keep it keep it pinned. I think it might be a good idea to keep <laughs> it up at the top of your Twitter uh, page for a while. Uh, on that, uh, on sort of a related point, Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi recently said. Um, that it is long past overdue for the U.S. Congress to pass a resolution stating clearly that the U.S. will not use nuclear weapons in a first strike capacity, uh, at least without congressional authorization um, in in some fashion. Uh, You know, she claims that this is not because of Donald Trump being in the Oval Office, but that no president should have that kind of power um, would the passage of such a law or resolution like that, I hadn't even understood, uh, hadn't even known, but I guess back in 1943, was it? 43, 46, um, Congress gave authorization to the president for to launch a first strike uh, if the president sees fit. Would it be a good idea right around now to pass a resolution or a law that Congress would need to give authority before uh, a first strike, or at least that the U.S., a res- you know, an announcement that the U.S. will never be the first to launch a nuclear weapon? I think we're long overdue for the point of having a national discussion over what it means to put one person and one person alone in charge of uh, authorizing the use of nuclear weapons. Now, if the president can't you know, physically launch the weapons himself. There is no actual button Mm -hmm. to disappoint people. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, uh, or maybe not disappoint people. Yeah, no. But but the the authority to use nuclear weapons rests with the president and the president alone. Uh, There are people that he can and should consult, uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's his decision. And if anybody were to disagree with him, uh, everybody who's in the chain of command is ultimately... Uh, hired by the president and can be fired by the president. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really think, you know, a lot of people are, are obsessed, maybe for the wrong word here, but seriously concerned about, you know, Donald Trump uh, waking one day in a fit of peak, watching Fox and Friends getting really mad and saying, you know, gosh darn it, we're going to you know, knock them out of the water or whatever, and, and deciding to use nuclear weapons. I think that's pretty unlikely. However, if he did do that, the people at the at the operator end, the young men and women in the missile silos on the submarines and the bombers, mm-hmm. they're not going to have any real way of knowing what triggered the decision to use nuclear weapons, particularly the people in the silos and the subs. Right. You know, they're not, they're not, they're cut off from the rest of the world. They would, ta- they would take the order and execute they, they them. They train constantly to fire these things very quickly. That's, yeah. that's their mission. And so, and, and I have no reason to suspect that they would you know, choose not to do that. Uh, the, the people at the higher end, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other people that are in the room when the president gives the order could certainly object, but again, they are duty-bound to carry out these orders, so it's really only mass insubordination could stop a president's order from, you know, to use nuclear weapons. So I think having 
certainly debate hearings. There are there's a, there's a bill in the Senate and a bill in the House to look at uh, uh, whether you know how, whether we should change how nuclear weapons use is authorized and when. I think that's all well and good. There are some complications about getting you know too many people involved in the process because then you know I mean if you have to get a committee together and decide to launch a nuclear war. I mean I understand that personally I think that would be an okay thing. Yeah. But if you're the military, that's not that's not going to fly. But uh, regardless of who's president. I mean, if anything good comes out of this, uh, you know, it will be that people are much more aware of the power that a president has to incinerate the world and how many nuclear weapons we have still and what our plans, uh, you know, are for them. And the administration, by the way, is in the midst of a a nuclear posture review that is looking at uh, how many more nuclear weapons we should have, you know, new bombers, new missiles, new submarines, potentially new tactical nuclear weapons, lower-yield weapons that would be, quote-unquote, more usable, uh, the theory being that the ones we have are too big now, which is bizarre because nuclear weapons are designed to be immensely destructive. That's why they deter. So why would you want, why would you think that they aren't, you know, they aren't usable as is. If you make them small, uh, you're sort of defeating the purpose. Are, are, of are, they, saying they're, are they saying they're too big uh, physically large or that they no, would like too smaller? Big in terms of too big in terms of an explosion, and what they mean by that is that they're so large mm-hmm. that they're not they're not geared toward quote unquote today's targets. So the weapons we have, the, the legacy weapons, if you will, from the Cold War, were designed to destroy Soviet command and control posts, or Soviet ICBM silos, or Soviet submarines, or any any number of other things. Whereas today, perhaps we wish we just want to destroy you know, a building or a city block or something like that. And, you know, the weapons we have, by and large, although we do have some low-yield weapons in the arsenal, are, are simply too destructive. So in the end, we would be self-deterred from using them because we would not, we would not want to undertake that level of destruction to achieve whatever military objective we wanted. And therefore, the thinking goes, our adversary would know that we had no intention of using them and then there is no more nuclear deterrent. I don't buy that. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's a silly psychological game. Uh, you know, if, if, why would you telegraph to another side that you have no intention of using these weapons? And in any case, would they really believe you if they don't trust you? But mm. that's, that's the argument. So they're in the midst of all this. Um, but to get back to something you said earlier, this is, you know, we're, we're celebrating is the wrong word, but this month is the 55th anniversary mm-hmm. of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest that we've ever come to using nuclear weapons when John F. Kennedy was faced with the prospect of what do you do about these nuclear missiles, mm-hmm. and as it turns out, tactical nuclear weapons that we had no idea were there on Cuba, you know, whatever it is, 80 or 90 miles from U.S. shores, uh, and that ended well, although there were a couple instances where it almost didn't, and we ended up, uh, you know, in a situation where we were trying to get a Soviet submarine to surface, and the, the submarine captain and, I believe, his first officer uh, were intent on actually launching the nuclear weapon that they had aboard their submarine, thinking that they were under attack. And unfortunately, a third officer that had to concur decided, no, that's not appropriate, and they didn't. But the, the Cuban Missile Crisis could have ended very differently, as could have a number of other crises um, during the Cold War that we know uh, less about. So cooler heads prevailed then. It's hard to know what's you know going to happen today. And like I said, I don't worry about Donald Trump so much deciding in a fit of Twitter peak or whatever to launch a nuclear attack, I worry that his ignorance and his arrogance and his, uh, you know, 
complete lack of knowledge about all things nuclear, not to mention all things foreign policy, will end up getting him, you know, blundering into some sort of yep. crisis from which there will be no real escape. And that's when nuclear weapons end up being used by one side or the other, that's, which would be obviously horrific. That is, uh, that's my concern. And I've got uh, Stephen Schwartz, I've got just a minute or two here, and there's two more questions I want to try to fit in. Uh, sure. Since you have been studying the world's nuclear threats for so many years now, um, is there a way to compare this moment in history to the nuclear tensions of the Cold War? And do you feel, uh, you know, as, as I do, frankly, that Trump and, and as Bob Corker seems to agree, uh, the Republican senator, that uh, Trump himself seems to currently pose uh, a greater immediate threat to uh, national and, and world security right now than anything else currently? Is there a way to, to, to quantify that or just what is your general feeling? Uh, it, it, it's difficult to quantify. There, there are certainly more players involved today, let's say vis-a-vis North Korea, than in the past. You know, China's made clear that, mm-hmm. you know, if, for example, we attack North Korea with conventional, let alone nuclear weapons, uh, that they're going to get involved. And China has nuclear weapons, and they border North Korea. So that's a concern. Russia also happens to border part of North Korea. So, and they have nuclear weapons. So, you know, this is this is something that could be... I, that I don't think, if it happens, would remain a regional thing. It could go uh, global, you know, very quickly, and that would be obviously horrendous. Uh, I think that the, the factor here that is there's just two factors that I think are important. One is that you know people, I guess, until fairly recently, had sort of forgotten about nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the Cold War was over. What do we have to worry about? And now we're all getting an intense and <laughs> very urgent education yeah. about them. Again, there are fewer weapons around than there were, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. Donald Trump figured that out at his meeting in the Pentagon back in July, which may also have been prompting this discussion about putting bombers back on alert. I was speculating mm. with somebody yesterday. Um, but I think the other thing, obviously, is that you have a president who is not only doesn't know very much about the world and about nuclear weapons, but has no obvious, you know, obviously has no interest in knowing about them. And that just makes, you know, he's, so he's operating on instinct, and I think what he's doing, or what I see him doing anyway, is treating uh, North Korea, or Russia for that matter, treating it like everything he's done in his, life, in his business life, which is that he bullies and insults and eventually wins. And he doesn't see any difference between that kind of business relationship and what he's doing here on the international stage. And that's what worries me the most. As the uh, former longtime executive editor and director of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, uh, which maintains the notorious doomsday clock, uh, for folks who don't know, it's uh, meant to symbolize the the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe uh, since 1947. It's been maintained by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, and I think uh, over the past 10 years, it also reflects the threat of climate change. Back in January of this year, before Trump's threats to North Korea, fire and fury and so forth, uh, much less his administration's complete undoing of federal climate policy, that clock, that doomsday clock, was moved forward to uh, two and a half minutes to midnight. Uh, I, I know you're no longer the executive uh, uh, editor at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, but is that clock likely to tick closer to midnight in its next uh, annual assessment, Stephen Schwartz? Well, I have no, you know, I can't predict the future, 
and I have no uh, control, as it were, over the, the setting of the clock. Uh, but knowing how it works and knowing what it's taken into account since its creation in 1947 and knowing you know, what the justification was for the change to two and a half minutes back in January, I have not seen anything on the horizon either with regard to uh, national or international security generally or, or nuclear security specifically or global warming for that matter, which is another factor that it counts, mm-hmm. uh, that is in any way positive. So it's hard for me to see the clock moving further away from midnight. I can see a lot of reasons why you would want to move it um, closer. The concern you know, with doing that is that there's only you know, two and a half minutes left before <laughs> midnight, being, midnight being you know, some version of the end of the world, whether yeah. it's one weapon going off or the literal end of the world. So that, that real estate, that uh, temporal real estate, as it were, becomes much more valuable the closer you get to midnight. So I don't know, but I'm sure the people involved in making that decision will have a very uh, interesting and difficult discussion in the weeks ahead. Stephen Schwartz, nuclear weapons policy analyst, current adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Uh, and uh, you can find, you can and should follow him on the Twitters at Atomic Analyst. Stephen Schwartz, really appreciate you joining us here today, making a lot of this stuff clear. I hope we won't have to be calling you again soon. <laughs> I would be happy to participate in the future. Happy probably isn't the right word again, but <laughs> any, uh, to reassure you and your listeners as much as possible. I'll take whatever I can get these days. Thank you very much, Stephen Schwartz. You're very welcome. Okay, uh, quick break. Speaking of that other existential threat that the planet now faces, global warming, yes, on our uh, climate crisis, we'll take a quick break. Come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast, melting out here in Los Angeles today. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, uh, we had to get to our latest Green News report. <laughs> yes. I've already got something that needs to be corrected from Oh. It. So uh, listen to the GNR, and I will come back with the correction. Here we go, our latest Green News report. It's uh, shocked all of us when we saw the numbers. New report finds pollution kills more people every year than war, disaster, or hunger. Do you agree that the president's response and his administration's has been a 10? Well, if it is a 10 out of a scale of 100, of course. Senate to vote on disaster relief for hurricane victims. 
EPA censoring climate science and government scientists. Plus, it's the hottest World Series in professional baseball history. Literally. Oh, fantastic. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Coal-fired power plants cause terrible air pollution. Stop! Air pollution is a myth. Like asthma. Some kids just cough more. Sign that man up for the Trump administration. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it is late October. It sure as hell doesn't feel like it out here in Southern California. No, certainly not. And that means that Game 1 of the World Series starts in Los Angeles on Tuesday during a record-breaking heat wave with temperatures around 100 degrees in late October. This will indeed be the hottest World Series in history. It actually reached 101 this week in Los Angeles again in late October. Yeah, we can't really say that enough, can we? Not that anybody cares. In Puerto Rico, more than a month after Hurricane Maria hit, 30% of the island still lacks clean drinking water, and 80% of the island remains without electricity. The U.S. Senate is scheduled to vote on a $36 billion disaster relief funding package this week that already passed the House. More than half of that will go to FEMA to deal with the multiple simultaneous extreme weather disasters that have hit the United States. And is it nearly enough? No, it certainly certainly is not. Congressional Republican leadership, however, has promised additional future aid bills. Senate Democratic Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Monday called on President Trump to appoint an official disaster response and recovery coordinator, granted the authority to bring all federal agencies together to oversee federal disaster response efforts. I thought that's what FEMA was supposed to do. I thought that's what the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to do when FEMA came under it. I thought that's what the president was supposed to do when he oversaw the Department of Homeland Security. Turns out, lights on, nobody's home. In an interview on the broadcast, former Puerto Rican Energy Commissioner and current United Nations Climate Policy Consultant Ramon Cruz warned that rebuilding Puerto Rico's electric grid is a very complex undertaking, vulnerable to vultures seeking to take advantage of billions in federal aid dollars. Cruz also warned mainland Americans to push their own elected representatives to do more to prepare climate disaster adaptation plans. Everywhere in the coast, everywhere that is vulnerable, to climate change, to global warming, there should be a plan for how to deal with essential infrastructure. Well, of course they should have such plans, but this administration can't even get through a a single disaster in Puerto Rico. You expect them to plan for the next one? Meanwhile, pollution kills more people every year than war, disaster, or hunger. That's the conclusion of a new study published in the medical journal Lancet that found that in 2015, at least 9 million people around the world died prematurely due to exposure to toxic pollution caused by fossil fuels and industrial sources, especially in developing economies with lax environmental regulations. The researchers warn the actual number of 
deaths is likely much higher and noted that pollution is also expensive. Polluting industries don't pay for the higher health care costs that they cause. And as co-author Dr. Richard Fuller noted in The Guardian, quote, what people don't realize is that pollution does damage to economies. People who are sick or dead cannot contribute to an economy. Why do you hate jobs, Desi Doyen? Meanwhile, Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt is ratcheting up censorship of science and EPA scientists, including the last-minute cancellation of the scheduled appearance of three EPA scientists who were set to present an EPA-funded report on climate change impact on Monday at a conference partly funded by the EPA. Pruitt also indicated he plans to limit scientists who receive EPA research grants from participating on federal science advisory boards to avoid what he called potential conflicts of interest, but not scientists who are funded by industries that are regulated by the EPA. And in an apparent effort by the EPA to play down the threat of global warming, the agency has deleted even more climate science data from taxpayer-funded websites. That's according to a new analysis by the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative. They found that dozens of online climate resources have been taken down, including information intended to help state, local, and tribal governments prepare for the impacts of climate change. But Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced on Monday that now 17 cities around the U.S. have stepped in to act as repositories for much of the federal climate science data that Trump's EPA has removed. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.com bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh, boy. It's a scorcher. It is indeed. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. The correction that I mentioned this morning uh, when we laid down our, our latest Green News report there, uh, the temperatures out here in L.A. had had topped out at 101, as I noted. But as of this afternoon, parts of L.A. saw 104 degrees. Wow, that's a record, I believe. In late October. Yes, it is a record. The records are falling, and uh, we continue to pay an enormous price for it. The Trump administration just keeps fiddling as uh, as the world burns. Actually, they're they're not fiddling. They are purposely the EPA. They're, they're lighting the match. <laughs> yeah, they are. The EPA, the Energy Department, the Interior Department. They have all now been entirely and completely captured by the fossil fuel and chemical industry. Period. They are now outlets for the fossil fuel and chemical industry, period, entirely, completely. We're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, they now serve those corporate interests, not the people of the U.S. that they were created to serve, but more on that on another day, no doubt, uh, in a future GNR and broadcast and so forth. All right. Got to get out. Thank you to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Stephen Schwartz of the Middlebury Institute, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com. Uh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you'll find, follow, and share us worldwide where I am simply the Brad Blog. My thanks, as ever, to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate 
to actively help support us continue to do what we try to do on your public airwaves every day via the Bradcast and the Green News Report. All right, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, Dodgers. Good luck, world. <laughs>